Welcome to the Replay Value Podcast, where we deep dive into the movies we all love to watch over and over again. I'm Phil, joined by my brother from the same mother, our co-host on the West Coast, Warren. In this Christmas Eve episode, we're going to talk about the action thriller cult classic, Die Hard. In this movie, a New York police officer tries to save his wife and 32 other people that are being held hostage by 13 German terrorists robbing $600 million in bear bonds during a Christmas party at the Nakatomi Plaza in Los Angeles, California. I want to start off by acknowledging that uh, this movie was based on a 1979 novel, Nothing Lasts Forever, something I did not learn until a few years ago. I went a, a large chunk of my life not knowing this came from a book. Yeah, great action movie, simple plot. Uh, I also was surprised to find out that the concept was derived from a novel. Uh, now, the 1979 novel, Nothing Lasts Forever, was a sequel novel to the 1966 book, The Detective. That novel was adapted into a 1968 movie starring Frank Sinatra was also surprised to discover that I, I did not know that. So it seems like there was a little bit of uh, I don't know if there was any books after that, but there was a building off of this character that came, became John McClane and die hard. Uh, I guess the books kind of fell the wayside and the movies just kind of took on a life of their own. I mean, it's become a film franchise, but the movie surpassed the books in popularity. I mean, these books were out of print and were then put back in circulation because of the films. And when a movie based on the sequel novel started, the studio had to offer Frank Sinatra, who was 70 years old at the time, he obviously turned it down, but they were obligated. The studio had to offer him the role first because he had made the the first film back in the 60s. Um, So... uh, I know we usually cover that in the casting what ifs, but uh, interesting that Sinatra was connected to uh, the franchise uh, with the original novel. Well, I wouldn't even count that as a casting what if. I, again, I think it was more of a contractual obligation. If anything, it was uh, pretty pretty obvious he was going to, to say no to the film unless it was some sort of diehard version of The Rock where he was like the older Sean Connery character. I I don't know. But uh, anyway, um, let's briefly mention some of the differences between the novel and the film, of which there are quite a few. Mm-hmm. Uh, first off, and the biggest one is that in the book, they are, you know, clear cut terrorists. That is what they are denoted as. Whereas in the film, the producer wanted to more focus on them being thieves. Uh, he felt like adding the politics to it took the joy out of the movie and that the thieves kind of doing a caper. There was more fun in that. Well, John McTiernan, you know, the director had a lot to do with the shift and that was because he wanted to change the tone. Uh, the, the novel was a lot darker uh, than the film and m- making that adjustment from them you know, using the terrorists as more or less uh, an escapade to cover for the robbery, uh, that all came from, you know, uh, that was his brainchild. That's another difference you were mentioning that the darker tone of it actually bled over into the character, John McClane. Uh, he was known as Joe Leland in the book. He was a retired police officer, mm-hmm. wasn't active. 
uh, alcoholic. So he was just looking back on his life and regretting his decisions. Whereas McLean, he's young enough to where he has a chance to make a change uh, and has that hopefulness that Leland didn't have in the book. And I think this is a great example of where it's a different medium and you can't do a carbon copy of what the book is in the film. You have to make adjustments for what the cinematic experience is. And this being an action genre film, McTiernan felt it necessary to change that tone and make those adjustments to where it wasn't so much darker. You know, he was still an active cop kind of going with some of those more classic action uh, cliches, if you will. Uh, And and also a major difference in the book, he was visiting his daughter, not his wife. Yes. uh, Stephanie Gennaro, not Holly Gennaro. Right. And, Another big difference uh, between the novel and the film was the ending, and that's where the book is ultimately much darker. Uh, In the film, we all know McLean saves his wife. Uh, Leland fails to save his daughter and is also mortally wounded. At the end, yeah, when she's, uh, or Hans, in, in the book, Hans is called Anton, but falling out of the window takes Stephanie uh, with him and you know he was able to save everyone else but but her mm-hmm. so kind of uh, tragic and, and really tragic uh, very tragic book. but yeah. again those darker i think aspects work better in a novel than you know kind of like what you were saying earlier when it, it translates to a movie typically doesn't uh, have that that mainstream appeal that blockbuster quality you're going with mm-hmm. when it's that dark now there were some similarities that they did you know things that did work that they did carry over from the novel uh, McLean and Leland are both armed at the party they have their piece even though they're outside their jurisdiction uh, but they're armed with nothing but a pistol and a tank top so that that iconic element of die hard came from the novel originally and the action scenes are also the same in the book he's crawling through air ducts he's you know jumping with the fire hose off the roof he's throwing c4 down an elevator all that happens in the book too did not know that uh, that it stayed that close to it i thought they maybe would have taken some more liberties being that it was a movie but good to know yeah and you know john mctiernan turned down the job several times because the script was too nasty you know he originally didn't want to do it and it was only because of the changes we just previously discussed the that he ended up agreeing to direct the film you know before this he had done predator big hit with arnold uh die hard was only his third feature of course we all know after this he do hunt for red october blast action hero you know, die hard with a vengeance which i really consider die hard too uh thomas crown affair so mctiernan has helmed some hits uh, you know uh, throughout his career and interesting going back to the script and it being reworked from the the, the novel uh, you, know, you mentioned mctiernan didn't like it at first the first couple drafts but they went into this film uh and even when they were shooting it, they didn't really know how they were going to end it. Uh, they they were kind of making those decisions uh, on the fly. And one of them that you can famously see, and it even is called out in the commentary of the film, is when the quote-unquote terrorists, uh, Gruber and his gang, are arriving, and the van that they get out of, the Pacific Courier mm-hmm. van, is pretty small. You don't really catch it until, you know, you don't think about it, because later in the movie when you see it, that shows an ambulance coming out of it, which at the time when they were shooting the early part, they didn't have the ending figured out. So that was one thing they kind of had to change that they kind of regret uh, in hindsight. But you really don't notice it unless you're looking for it. It's funny they ended up having to come up with that solution because at, even as I found myself watching or re, you know rewatching uh, Die Hard, uh, you're wondering, okay, they know the FBI's coming, they're going by the handbook. How are they going to get out of here? 
And so ultimately they came up with the idea of them using the ambulance. But in fact, in the book, uh, it, it takes place over three days. Uh, McTiernan wanted to just make it one night uh, inspired by uh, Midsummer Night's Dream. Right, which was for the better. Again, that's one of those things. More suitable for an action movie. Yeah, More suitable for an action movie. Yeah, it's it, Christmas Eve. It, it, the whole action takes place right then. It just stretching it out over three days. I mean, wh- what is this? The Hobbit trilogy? I mean, we're going to try to stretch it out, you know, three times as long as it needs to be. It just didn't want, wouldn't have worked mm-hmm. for the film. Yeah. I have to mention the director of photography, the cinematographer, Jan DeBont. Uh, he also would go on to direct Speed, which we covered in the first season. But he got the idea of the film Speed when he was trapped in a lift on the set of Die Hard. Oh, I think I think we may have even mentioned that in our Speed episode. But uh, another little tie-in uh, to Speed and a, another film, Die Hard with a Vengeance, that he did uh, is the the truck i mentioned earlier pacific courier uh, it means messenger of peace he has been known to put that in uh movies to as a kind of a call out or a tongue-in-cheek reference that kind of carries over um carrying you know, the bad guys a messenger of peace uh you know having that crossover into those films i thought that was pretty cool and uh, gotta bring up the building nakatomi plaza yeah man uh, iconic it, 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 iconic but it's really and you would know this i'm sure you've driven by it many times out there all the time every every week it's really called fox plaza Mm -hmm. but i didn't even know that probably for for the first several times i watched the film realizing that of course they wouldn't just have this building for the film it's a real life place of business and it's but everyone knows it as the diehard building. So that's like, what they call the, it. And even when you're driving in L.A., it, it's where it is placed. It sticks out in the skyline. Every time you see it, you think of the movie. And one of the big reasons they ended up filming in this building, it was still being built at the time they filmed Die Hard. And they had a hard time giving permits because they were using explosions, practical effects and stunts. No building would sign off. And so Fox ended up letting them and even fought the production quite a bit on letting them film in, in the building as it was being uh, finished. Yeah, because, I mean, the, what you see in the film is the construction areas are real construction areas that they were actually still working on. Uh, all right, so the music of the film is something that I really want to touch on for just a minute. I, I loved this as a kid, the usage of Beethoven's Ode to Joy. I thought that was always cool, and the first time you watch the film, or at least for mm-hmm. me, you notice it when they open the vault and there's that big glorious you know Beethoven's ninth uh, kicking in there and the wind blowing back Hans Gruber's hair and it's just awesome moment but as you as I replayed the the movie you know throughout my teenage years and growing up I, I began to pick up on the the Ode to Joy song was like sprinkled in Michael Kamen's score of the film itself it's like he he laid the groundwork through variations in the score to set that moment up later in the movie. You don't even realize it. Michael Kamen uh, did a really awesome job on the score. It's a sibling to Lethal Weapon, and and there are similarities when you listen to or when you watch Lethal Weapon, it being an action movie during Christmas in the 80s, and then Die Hard, they're siblings uh, musically of each other. Uh, and some of the actors were even, you know, close to being involved in some of the same projects. But uh, Michael Kamen had done Lead the Weapon the year before, so not hard to believe he borrowed some 
parts of that that worked and then, you know, built on it for Die Hard. After this, he would go on to do the entire Lethal Weapon series, part two, three, and four, as well as Die Hard 2 and 3, X-Men, Robin Hood, and Don Juan DeMarco, just, just to name a few. Two Oscar nominations and 91 credits as a film composer. Wow, it's someone you don't even really think of. I mean, but he's got a lot of famous uh, movie scores that he's done. Uh, one thing about his score for Die Hard, uh, you know, you, th- you were talking about a lot of the moments where they put in like the bells or like certain hits. It was very common uh, with a lot of scores, but a lot of overdubbing was done to accent those certain visual elements of the film so that it would match up with the music, which is, again, pretty common. They'll lay down the score, but then they'll go back and say, hey, they're on the editing floor. It's like, hey, we want this to match up here. Mm -hmm. So it's just like whenever he hits him with the chair, let's make the music boom, you know, get really big. Um, Another reference that they put in uh, was um, variations of Singing in the Rain. What also was also kind of intertwined uh, into the score. It was a reference to A Clockwork Orange and Stanley Kubrick, uh, but that was um, those two songs, Singing in the Rain and Ode to Joy, were in that film. So it was, in, in some ways, a subtle homage uh, to Kubrick. Um, and then, oh, I lastly, love that. yeah, it was really cool. Uh, lastly, I uh, want to mention that at the end of the film, they didn't have the score figured out for the last four mm-hmm. minutes, or maybe McTiernan changed up the edit and didn't really like the way the score fits. So he actually ended up pulling scores from two other Fox properties to work in at the end when McLean and uh, Sergeant Powell see each other at the end. What you actually hear is a score from 19, uh, 1987's Man on Fire. Mm. And then when Carl shows up, he pulls out his, his rifle or his, his gun you hear James Horner's score from Aliens. How about that? He just mashed up a lot of things he knew would work that were proven successful. And I just watched the new Quentin Tarantino documentary, and he says, you know, and Marlon Brando said this, the greats steal from the other greats. We don't pay homage. We rip off. We steal. And so that's just another example. Yeah, even in music, it's like that. You see that in film. You see it in all forms of art. Uh, you, You steal, but you make it your own. Exactly. Now let's shift to the stars of the picture. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Number one on the call sheet, the hero, the protagonist of the film, Bruce Willis as John McClane. He has said it's his favorite role, was paid a mere $5 million to do the, this film. But A he, mere $5 million? This was like his second movie that he had done. Considering the profit so, that it made. But you got to think he made a lot more than that because... It made him an action star. I mean, he was the biggest benefactor of this film. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say at the time, for what he was, paying him $5 million was an overpayment. Yeah, that's fair. He was a TV star and it was unproven. Absolutely. That's a very good point. I mean, at the time, he was only known for the comedy series Moonlighting. He did what Blind Date the year before in 87 with Kim Basinger, but that was it. You know, he hadn't really been in a big hit yet. Right, yeah, so that was it was very much a risk. I mean, he was uh, far and away not the first choice uh, for the film. Uh, to give you a few what-ifs, really, they're what-ifs uh, because they turned it down the, the role. Uh, Schwarzenegger, Stallone, Eastwood, Harrison Ford, Burt Reynolds, Richard Gere, Mel Gibson Holy all shit. turned down this film. And I, uh, really, the way that it was decided, 
that McTiernan wanted to pull Willis is they went to the polling company Cinema Score, which was famous back then and even a little today um, for gathering metrics. When people would come out of the theater, they would ask them questions and take cards to figure out uh, who they liked. And it was through that polling company that they got they came across Bruce Willis's name. And that's how they ended up settling on him. And I thought it was interesting listening to Bruce Willis talk about why he settled on Die Hard and playing John McClane. What was it that you said, yeah, this film is the one I want to pick over others that are behind? The guy, it was about this guy. There is a, there is a, uh, a quiet dignity in John McClane that uh, I really wanted to play. You know, this, this character, I think, is a lot closer to anything. It's a lot closer you know, to, my, you know, to me than anything that I've done. And... Um, I wanted to play a character who, uh, who was not a superhero, who was not uh, invincible, who, uh, who was vulnerable, and who was able to be afraid and to, to feel pain. And uh, I think people relate to that. People, people uh, there's a lot of justice served in this film, and there's a lot of things for the audience to, you know, to kind of cheer about. Really interesting there. Bruce has a, dare I say, he's got a pretty high opinion of himself uh, in, in saying John McClane and him are very close. Uh, it, it, I am John McClane. He's got, he's got an aura of uh, arrogance and confidence, but I think that's kind of, you know, part of the course when you're, a, you know, a movie star. And he be- would go on to become a bona fide movie star. I mean, the 90s was his best decade. Die Hard 2 and 3, Pulp Fiction, Fifth Element, 12 Monkeys, Armageddon, and, and closing out in 1999 was Sixth Sense. Well, that's a that's a good point. Yeah, he had quite a great ten year run there, um, from the late eighties to the late nineties. But he made an interesting point in what he was talking about the character, and um, you know, going back to the book and the not and the the movie differences um, between the book McLean, which was you know John uh, Joe Leland, mm-hmm. he was more of a tough as nails New York City cop. He didn't have that vulnerability that Willis was referring to, and they established that. Earlier on in the film, you know, for instance, whenever you see him get an Argyle's limo and he sits in the front seat, yeah. it's one of those subtle things where you, you your your brain sees it, but you don't really realize how much how far it's going to establish the character and that he's just you know a regular guy. And you know, he, it makes it very likable as the lead. Exactly, and even when he you know how he talks to himself and kind of beats himself up for the way that he deals with. Uh, talking to Holly, his ex, and he's, you can tell he's trying to patch things up and that he really cares about her. Um, th- there's those elements there that weren't there in the book that he really brought to the character. Yeah, for it being, what, his second feature film as a lead, uh, he really stepped up and brought it as playing McClane. But my MVP, and it's obvious, it's the villain of the film, the antagonist. It's Alan Rickman as Hans Gruber. Yeah, you got to. Yeah, man. First feature film. He was 41 at the time. Classic. Yeah, almost unheard of. Classically trained actor uh, who who had done a lot of Shakespeare. Uh, Rickman was cast after producer Joel Silver saw him on Broadway in an adaptation of Dangerous Liaisons. Mm, okay, yeah, I know he had done theater and a lot of uh, TV movies and, and series at the, at the, uh, before Die Hard. Yeah. yeah, he did some British television, but the American audience is relatively unknown. Uh, and fair to say, Hans Gruber, one of the greatest action movie villains in cinema history. 
Oh, absolutely. And a lot of that was McTiernan and Rickman himself, uh, because you look at the book, the character Anton Gruber in the book was just ruthless and evil, but everything was told from uh, the cop, Leland, the cop's perspective. Yeah. So you didn't get a lot of character development from Gruber. And so that charisma, that charm, that was all Rickman. And breaking down his performance of what makes it so memorable and special, it's a contained, controlled performance, like it's just another day at the office. And you see that after the terrorists make their entrance, when he addresses the hostages for the first time, he's reading from a date book. Like, it's just another day at work. Like, he's so matter-of-fact, and, oh, this is today's robbery. Let's see where we are. Nakatomi, <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> is everybody attention? Attention, listen up, please. Um, uh, very well composed, and just, you get the idea, his experience, not his first rodeo. Um, but he, he's brilliantly uninterested in, in what is happening, almost bored at times because he's so experienced. Um, you know, like with a phone call with the cops when he goes about that whole, uh, you know, uh, fake narrative with releasing certain prisoners that are being held in different prisons uh, around the world. But fair to say, most memorable character from the movie, very well-dressed, precise grooming, which also are little subtleties that tell you a lot about the character. Uh, one of the best beards in movie history. I, mean, I think oh, yeah. we could say right there with being one of the great villains. And if real quick on the facial hair, I don't know of another film I could think of off the top of my head where he had facial hair because I feel like so many people would have associated with that. It's like, oh, it's Hans Gruber. It's like every he almost big... has to rule it out. Yeah, but like yes. uh, uh, Brian Cranston won't play a character where he's going to shave his head anymore because of the association with Walter White. Yeah, of course, right. too iconic. Uh, most quotable character from the film, I mean, right there with uh, Bruce Willis is John McClane. Uh, the, but the lines, the reason why I think it's one of the most memorable performances, one of the reasons uh, is his quote survived the TV censors, as were Bruce Willis's didn't. A lot of Bruce Willis's had cuss words. Uh, Hans were, you know, uh, PG, even in the R-rated version, a lot of his best lines. So in the TV version, you still got that. So a lot of people were uh, really hung on to his performance. Uh, you know, and, and part of you doesn't really care if he gets away with the money. Uh, <laughs> you know, I don't necessarily hate the guy, although he is a bastard. I mean, what, he, he killed a couple people in cold blood. Yeah, I mean, but that's the thing is that in, in some sense, you, you're not necessarily rooting for the bad guy, but you... There's the charm element there goes a long way into making the movie great, and Rickman did a lot to to bring that to the role. Yeah, and he, just it was a perfect storm for his performance. Not only did he do great with the character, but even the accident where they dropped him 30 feet uh, with the green screen uh, for his death at the end. Spoilers: uh, they dropped him. The stunt guy dropped him on the count of two, not three. So that look of surprise on his face is uh, authentic and. Uh, Rickman was not happy about them doing that, but in hindsight, it, it helped his performance. How could it not? Well, he probably saw the dailies. He's like, yeah, okay, that was good. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Bonnie Bedelia as Holly Gennaro. Uh, surprising choice, some may think, for the film, but not really. Uh, she had some uh, people in her corner with Bruce Willis uh, and McTiernan. Willis actually recommended her for, uh, for the film after seeing her in the movie Heart Like a Wheel. Yep. Um, so that, that performance there catapulted her uh, to McTiernan and the casting director and, and got her the part. And she would go on to appear in the second Die Hard, Die Hard 2, uh, just a couple years later. 
Uh, funny little Easter egg, she is the aunt of Macaulay Culkin, the star of Home Alone, the Christmas movie we covered in season one. Oh, wow. I did not know that. That's cool. Yeah. Again, one of the crazy parallels uh, with the movies. Most recently, she starred on Parenthood, the, the TV series that just wrapped a couple years ago. Reggie Vell Johnson is Sergeant Al Powell. Uh, he would also appear in the second Die Hard, only in the first two Die Hards of the five uh, in the franchise. He had appeared in Ghostbusters in 84, worth a mm-hmm. mention. Yeah, as a cop. And, yeah. Yep, uh, kind of his uh, typecast there. Go on to star on Family Matters. Uh, as a cop. Ni- yeah, if, as, as a cop. Uh, in 1989, uh, running through 1998. And that's probably what he's most known for right there with this movie is uh, – like I said, most known for playing a cop. Yeah, uh, but absolutely most famously the police officer in Chicago for Family Matters. So I'm sure there's some fan theory that it's the same police officer just relocating. But Ensemble cast that are, uh, justify honorable mentions. Alexander uh, Goodenough as Carl. The blonde-haired Fabio villain. Uh, <laughs> it's the, 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 the head henchman to Hans Gruber. Uh Paul Gleason as Deputy Chief Dwayne T. Robinson, the biggest fucking idiot in this movie. Oh, so um, inept. Jeez. God, I mean, the, the, the definition of incompetent. Uh, William Atherton is Richard Thornburg, the news reporter. Yes. A, a huge dick and also a, a huge dick in Ghostbusters. So this actor has made a living playing an asshole. Yeah. I mean, also very similar characters in there. I mean, he's just, again, yeah, asshole. Yeah. Hans Booby. Uh, Hart Bachner is Harry Ellis, and this actor is the son of Lloyd Bachner, who was in the original film, The Detective, based on the first oh, novel that's with cool. Frank Sinatra. That's so, very cool. Cool little uh, parallel there. Uh, Mary Ellen Trainer, who was in Lethal Weapon the year before. Also, Michael Kamen scored that film. She played the therapist to Martin Riggs in the Lethal Weapon series, and she would, of course, go into star in our childhood favorite, Monster Squad. She played the mom, too. Yes, yes. She uh, br- the, very the, briefly, the... the co-news anchor yeah it's like all, it's like all well, you she's see even ever. really quickly in forrest gump she plays the babysitter at the end that brings little forrest to uh, jenny before when uh, forrest uh, comes to visit wow, that's crazy yeah robert davy a special agent big johnson of johnson and johnson no relation al leong as yuli uh classic movie henchman uh he's the guy that eats the candy bar when they're locking down for the swat uh invasion uh from lethal weapon Die Hard, of course, and Bill and Ted. So, uh, classic um, uh, movie Genghis henchmen. Khan, yeah, and Bill yeah, and yeah, Ted. Yeah. That's right. And Tracy Reiner from A League of Their Own plays Thornburg's assistant. She's in it real quick, just one scene. And let's talk about the stats and accolades of Die Hard. Released July 15th, 1988 on a budget of $28 million. Uh, opening weekend was, uh, I guess, a softer release. It was only in 21 uh, theaters uh, to about 600,000. Uh, it did open wide to 12, at about 1,200 theaters for $7.1 million. Went on to gross domestically $83 million with a worldwide take of $140.7 million. And it was number three uh, that uh, weekend when it opened wide uh, domestically here in the U.S. Uh, the longest diehard movie of the five-film franchise, two hours and 12 minutes, uh, of course rated R, as I believe all the films are except the fourth one. I be- think that got a PG-13 Ugh, rating. Stupid. Uh, yeah. Uh, but its box office rank for 1988 was 10th. Scores of the film, Rotten Tomatoes, 93% on 74 reviews. Wow, that's really high. For an action gotta, film, yeah. Yeah, i got to think there's a lot of those are retroactive. 
Metacritic 70 on 13 critics. Uh, Cinema score A+. Critics, Roger Ebert, one of just a few critics to give it a bad review. Less than favorable. Two out of four stars. Really? Uh, Yeah, he thought it was a well-made film. He liked the performances. But he disliked the stupidity of Paul Gleason's deputy chief uh, character. Uh, Thought he was just poorly written. Was uh, incompetent to the point of you just questioned the logic to why he would even act this way or why, how he would even hold the, the, the title and rank that he does in the LAPD. That, that, I mean, that's a good point. There was, there's a lot of suspension of disbelief to go along with why, but again, I think it's part of the movie to do that, but I, I can see it doesn't really fit in with the other characters in the film. It's the, it's like no deputy chief would be acting that way. Yeah. But I still, it's it's a it's a, a nitpick on an overall really good movie. And yeah, that's why you, that it gives you, it a bad review. Uh, most critics liked it. It generally got favorable reviews. Uh, we're initially ambivalent about it, but I think it's benefited again with the retrospective uh, 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 reviews from critics. Awards: four Academy Award nominations, zero Oscar wins. Uh, best visual effects, best sound. At, Effects editing, best film editing, best sound. So a lot of the technical categories, right. uh, n- you know, nothing in the uh, major ones. Uh, another eight wins uh, with awards, uh, best foreign language film at the Japanese Academy and huh. two nominations. Uh, what w- did win best picture that year uh, at the Oscars, Rain Man. Yep. Other films, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Coming to America, Big. Beetlejuice covered that earlier this season, and The Naked Gun. Mm, yes, classic. I love that movie. Uh, TV shows of the year: scripted number one, Nielsen ratings; The Cosby Show number two, Roseanne; Emmy Best Comedy Series winner, Cheers; and the Emmy Best Drama Series winner, L.A. Law. Music of the year: number one, Billboard song "Faith" by George Michael, and the Grammy song of the year winner was "Faith" by George Michael. A uh, double crown there uh, for the uh, producer and artist of that song. Prices of the year, a movie ticket was $4.11 versus today, which is like $9.27 average. Gas was 96 a gallon versus today, where it's $2.87, up 200%. And finally, major events of the year, laser eye surgery was invented in the United States. Prozac is sold for the first time as an antidepressant. And the United States elects George H.W. Bush as the 41st president. All right. uh, Now for some fun stuff, talking about our favorite scenes and lines from the film. I've been looking forward to to doing it for this movie uh, because there's a lot of great ones. So let's kick things (laughs) off. Too many great scenes, man. We're going to miss some. I mean, for an action, you can't. Not with the structure. We got to keep it, uh, you know, to the winner, uh, runner up, and uh, honorable mentions. But uh, for this level of action movie, surprising to notate, only 21 on screen deaths, and it's 18 minutes before the first gunshot. Oh, well, uh, we, we got to set, set the stage, man. Come on. 
All right, so our runner-ups, let's start with yours. Warren, what was your runner-up scene? Well, even though this is an action movie, my favorite scenes aren't the action. It's the scenes that stage the action and and make it more meaningful uh, it, and it defines the characters vividly along the way. Uh, it, it elevates the action, and it's mostly the scenes with comic, you know, the comic touches uh, or, or, or the scenes uh, that have heart. Uh, my runner-up, though, and I went back and forth with, uh, I almost went with the um, where Gruber kills uh, Takagi mm-hmm. uh, because it demonstrates just how brutal Hans Gruber is and what, the, you know, what he's willing to do to get what he wants. But I settled on your white knight where Harry Ellis is killed by Gruber. Shut up, fellas. Just shut your mouth. Put Hans back on the line. Hans, this shithead does not know what kind of man you are, but I do. Listen. Good. Then you'll give us what we want and save your friend's life. You're not part of this equation. It's time you realized that. Hey, what am I, a method actor, Hans? <laughs> Babe, put away the gun. This is radio, not television. <laughs> Hans, this asshole is not my friend. I just met him tonight. I don't know him. Jesus Christ, Ellis, these people are going to kill you. Tell them you don't know me. <laughs> John, how can you say that after all these years, huh? John. John. <laughs> mm, okay, I have that as an honorable mention. I do, I do like that because um, Ellis is playing a game that he doesn't understand the rules of, but Gruber and McLean do. Well, and also, I think this is more brutal than the Takagi killing. Even though Takagi killing, we see the, his brains getting blown out on the glass, which visually you're like, whoa, fuck. But I think this killing is more shocking, even though it cuts away. We don't need to see it this time. And McTiernan does a very smart choice as a director to not show it because he doesn't have to. Mm-hmm. And I think in that way it gives it more power. But also because everyone is listening, the cops, yes. the hostages, uh, McLean, it, it, the, every the center of the universe of this film, every it's a full attention for this moment in the film and it gives it more impact, more gravitas and the screams you hear once they shoot Ellis, there's something so real about it. And so like, it just it hits you when you hear that many people scream in terror because nobody wants to hear that. Yeah. I mean, but it's true, but I mean, everyone knew Ellis was going to die going into that, except maybe Ellis himself. So, um, that's a good choice. I, I do like that. My runner-up, uh, and you hopefully had this as on your list somewhere, was when Hans is going to check up on the C4 uh, in the maintenance area below the rooftop, mm-hmm. and he drops down to see the bare feet of McLean standing in front of him. And he meets him for the first time. Exactly, and you can that see the wheels. That is my winner. Ah, great choice. Well, you know the old expression. Did we just become best friends? Nope. Hi there. How you doing? Oh. Please, God, no. You're one of them, aren't you? You're one of them. No, no. Don't kill me, please. No, please. Don't kill me, don't kill me, please. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Relax. Relax. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to hurt you. They've been speaking on the radio up to this point, and and, and McLean's been talking a lot of shit, uh, which we've enjoyed as the audience. You know, 
uh, some of the, the the classic lines, but uh, even the back and forth, like you watch too many movies as a uh, as a child, you know they they have a lot of uh, of fun uh, conversations on the radio. But this is the first time they've been face to face, and it leads to the big shootout. Uh, you know after uh, Gruber radios in the help, but I love Rickman in his performance here, and this is why he's one of the many reasons he's the MVP is he flexes his range in this scene. He acts as if he's Gruber acting. So it has a it drops mm. in quality. And he's so a dude can, playing another dude. Yeah, but he's yeah. not an actor as Gruber. <laughs> so it's not very convincing. And so he contextualizes that with like the layers in his performance and it's really high level work as an actor. It doesn't look like that when you're watching it, but it's it's some really fine work he's doing. Um uh, but it's it's the moment uh, when he shifts. Put down the gun and give me my detonators. Well, well, well. Hans. And because he thinks he has a gun in his hand and he starts, you know, radioing the guys. I'm going to count to three. Yeah. Like you did with Takagi. Oops. No bullets. Fucking stupid, Hans. And then, you know, the guys run out, all hell breaks loose, and McLean takes off running. Yeah. No, that's a it's a great choice. It's, you know, I had it as a runner up, but yeah, uh, it was the 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 wheels turning in in Gruber's head and how he's like, oh, you know. Don't shoot me. Oh, I'm so sorry. Don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. And, and that was the only play that he had, but he was able to pull that out. And McTiernan actually didn't, was not a big fan of uh, Rickman's uh, portrayal during that part because he felt like his British accent kept coming through. Uh, you know, I can't tell when I'm watching it, but you know, I'm seeing the, you know, the edited version of the film. Uh, but that, you know, that had to have been tough to do. It's, you know, he's a, a British actor playing a German to a thief who is pretending to be an American businessman. <laughs> so, I mean, this is some Robert Downey Jr. from Tropic Thunder level acting here. I'm a dude playing a dude disguised as another dude. And again, it's not showy. Like, you really have to be paying attention and dig deep to see, oh, wow, it's really some impressive work he's doing. Yeah. Uh, my winner is uh, the rooftop climax, which happens, uh, you know, some, somewhat a little bit later in the movie. The fucking but- the roof jump. Yeah, the roof jump where he, but I guess it's not just the explosion. What I like about it is, you know, the panic and the or the sense of urgency by McLean once he realizes what's going on, you know, and how that kind of builds off of the other uh, the other factors. You know, he, of course, the the hostages are panicking. They don't know who he is, and this is a guy with a gun just saying to get off the roof, and he. They won't go, so he just starts shooting, and then you see the helicopter. He's like, oh, let's take him out. It's a terrorist. They've made us. So they go to do that, and at the same time, Gruber's like, oh, he realizes the hostages are coming down. He's like, blow it up. So McClane, thinking, you know, what is he going to do? He starts talking to himself. He's like, you know, what the fuck are you doing? He's tying the, the fire hose around his waist. And those, that, that kind of talk, kind of hyping himself up, and then it culminates and him jumping uh, when the blast happens but that entire sequence of 
I mean, it's an action movie. I'm going to pick an action yeah, scene as my favorite. Yeah, yeah and I, I, sh- I didn't, uh, but I can see why you picked it. That was an honorable mention of mine, so great choice. Uh, and then I did have one honorable mention. It is the very end where he is hiding the gun behind his back with the gift wrapping tape. Uh, and he kind of starts laughing, and then yeah, he had the, the, the two bullets. He you know, shoots one at Hans and then gets the other guy right in the forehead, and then just kind of you see that the gun is empty and yeah. you know, does a little cowboy move there. But uh, that, and, and plus the exchange in there with Gruber is like, What was it you said to me before? Yippee Kaye, motherfucker. This the way that he delivers that line uh, yeah. back uh, to McLean. So I had, had to choose that as an honorable mention. Yeah, of course. Uh, I had two other honorable mentions. Uh, the ventilation ducts. Uh, you know, you have the, the the fall. You know, the stunt guy that did that really fell, and that's the take they use in the film. Mm, yes, um, yes, I did, I did read that, yeah. But it's one of the most iconic scenes. In fact, at Fox Studios, uh, one of the sound stages, you know, the iconic films of 20th century properties are painted on the side of sound stages. They have Star Wars, they have Simpsons, and they have Die Hard. And the painting of Die Hard is Bruce Willis's face in the ventilation duct with a Zippo lighter lit. And he's just looking straight up. You know, a lot of people will make that into a Christmas ornament with like uh, some sort of aluminum siding and then kind of curve the uh, the picture of McLean and then hang it on a Christmas tree so it looks like he's like in a ventilation duct. It's, it's pretty creative, actually. Uh, yeah. I wanted to do that. That's, that's a good, good choices. All right. Yeah, and then, he, and then he, he flips the Zippo lighter off and it says, Come out to the coast. We'll get together. Have a few laughs. Uh, last honorable mention is when he has the glass in his foot following the shootout uh, after the meeting with Hans. Hans gets his detonators back, happy camper, which why I don't know why he has the temper tantrum and Holly on a side note. My slight nitpick, I don't like doing them, but she's like, oh, John's still alive. Only one person can make someone that angry. So I didn't quite get that. But uh, the glass in the foot, it, it establishes the uh, sergeant pal friendship on the radio. You know, he's sitting there. He's, you know, he's got his foot under the faucet. He's trying to clean it the best he can with the limited resources he has uh, and this is one of the heartfelt moments in it. Sergeant Powell confines in him, you know, why he is on the uh, desk cop now, why he doesn't work the street anymore. Mm, yeah. You know, he shot a kid. Uh, and uh, again, this movie has a little bit of everything, but it, it really helps establish that relationship and grounds the film. Yeah. I'll tell you why Gruber was upset is because uh, McLean outsmarted him. And that is someone who prides himself on his intelligence. And for someone like McLean to get the best of him by, you know, faking him out with the gun and the no bullets, uh, that, that, and then of course escaping, that is why Gruber was so mad. Um, all right. So our favorite lines from the film, very quotable, mainly McLean and Gruber, um, runner up, I'll start things off. And it is a line by Gruber, but is set up by McLean. And it is when Carl's brother comes down the elevator and he looks on the sweater. And I just love the way Rickman executes the line. Now I have a machine gun. Ho, ho, ho. That is also my runner-up. Oh, we did it. Nice. What? Did we just become best friends? Yep. This is McLean's first kill. Uh, of the film, first terrace he takes down. It's also the first moment the terrorists realize they Houston, we've got a fucking problem. Yes, and he, he, McLean lets it know because at first he was just going to sit him down in the elevator, and then he looks over at the Santa Claus and kind of smirks, and 
you know the and you know, of course you know the rest yeah um so yeah great choice uh okay so our that was easy um our winners uh, maybe match up as well um what was your uh, your winner line warren welcome to the party pal oh i could have sworn you would have picked uh the most famous line from the film do you really think you have a chance against us mr cowboy Yeah, that's the radio banter where him and Hans are talking shit. Uh, you know, the TV version is Yippie Kaye Melon Farmer. Well, no, actually, there's a different TV version where he says Yippie Kaye Mr. Falcon. Yippie Kaye Mr. Falcon. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's like, who's Mr. Falcon? Oh, uh, wow. Um, but uh, yeah, it, yeah. It, <laughs> And it's it's also the only quote that is used in all five Die Hard films. It's safe to say it's the most famous line of this film and of the franchise. And that is why it's my winner. I mean, the the perpetuity of the it's line. An honorable mention of mine. I get it. I, I, just, get it, yeah. I just picked my personal favorites. Honorable mentions. I did have a couple. One is where he is actually in the air vent that you mentioned earlier. The uh, come out to the coast. We'll get together. Have a few laughs. Yeah. Love the way the the delivery is on that. Also line. gives up his location uh, with the lighter. True. To yes. Carl on the terrace. Yeah. So not a, not a smart call by one of the few mistakes McLean makes in the film. Uh, then the uh, earlier the uh, I'm gonna count to three. Oh, like you do with Takagi. Oops, no bullets. <laughs> Love that one. And then um, uh, shoot the glass. Uh, the more of the Gruber delivery. Carson, she's stimfenced. Shoot the glass. And then my last one, I know I'm sorry I had a, more than a few. Uh, one that's not as appreciated as much as I think it's earlier in the film. Well, I guess the first time you see Reginald Vell Johnson, Sergeant Powell, and he's in the gas station. He's like, has the Twinkie exchange, and he's got a bunch. He's like, they're for my wife. She's pregnant. The, the, the convenience yeah. store guy's just like, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's yeah. like, bag it. Big time. Uh, yeah, I, I think that... Definitely came from McTiernan and enlightening the, the, the tone of the film. A uh, couple of other honorable mentions we didn't cover. Uh, and this happened from a scene you mentioned earlier where he rides with Argyle. And he's like, when Argyle says, it's my first time driving a limo. And he's like, that's okay. It's my first time riding in one. You know, tells us McLean's just a good dude, uh, good guy, relatable, not, not an asshole. Yeah, um, no, that's a good one. I like that. Yeah. And. This is uh, when he's on the radio with uh, Sergeant Al Pal, and he's picking the, the glass out of his foot, and he's like, you know, all things being equal, I'd rather be in Philadelphia. Uh, this was on W.C. Fields' gravestone and is also what Ro- Ronald Reagan said after he was shot. Hmm. Interesting. I was wondering where that came from. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's oh. a famous line. Uh, last honorable mention is when McLean's under the table, and that terrace is like, next time you have a chance to kill someone, don't hesitate. Thanks for the advice. Yeah, I forgot about that. And that's yeah, another good. Yeah, again, so many great lines. Uh, the squibs, quotable. man. Like this movie yeah. uses the practical effects. He got the blood packets exploding out of his legs or people's chests. Like this movie doesn't shy away from uh, the, the the blood coming from gunshot, even almost excessively. But it has the the great lines to kind of back up the action of the film. That's more what I was saying. But yeah. Um, all right, let's recast the film with today's actors. Uh, we'll start a little bit lower on the call sheet with uh, a uh, character you just mentioned, the limo driver, Argyle. 
who did you have there? I went with Chris Red from SNL. Uh, I thought of JB Smooth from Curb, but I went mm. with Chris Red. Yeah, um, I, I like that, but I feel like one of the the things about Argyle's character was that he was young, precocious, and just very much out of his element. You know, he's he's new, and he's just the youthfulness and the inexperience is what comes through. But that love of life, and I feel like Chris Red and JB Smooth, they're a little bit great fits, but I feel like they're a little bit. They're too wise to the world already. It's just like Argyle is somebody who thinks he's got it all figured out, but definitely doesn't. Okay. So who did you have? Yeah. I went with Caleb McLaughlin, who played Lucas, or who plays Lucas in Stranger Things. And you might be thinking, oh, he's too young. Uh, uh, uh. He is 18 years old. He would be perfect for this role. He's 18? He is 18 years old, right, yes. You're going to get that one then, damn Thank it. you. Yes, I all mean. Right. Perfect Argyle, yeah. But okay, uh, all, right. all right. So let's move on to Carl, the uh, well, you know, pretty much the head uh, thug yep. that of uh, of Hans. Uh, who who did you have there? I went uh, pulled also from the Stranger Things basket. I went with Andre Ivanchenko, uh, Gregor Gore, the Russian Terminator from season three. Oh, okay. That man, that's really. I was really stumped on this one, and I ended up pulling up a. a pulling out uh, Ed Scrine or Screen, I'm saying it wrong. He was uh, Dario Naharis in Game of Thrones, and he was also um, um, Jax, or no, not not Jax, what's his name, from Deadpool, the bad guy from the first Deadpool movie. Yeah, I'm uh, going to get this one. Yeah, you got that one. Yeah, you okay. take that one. All right, one-to-one. Right, yeah. one. All right, uh, Harry Ellis, the douchebag uh, businessman that gets a little uh, over his head uh, with Gruber. Uh, I'll, I'll take this one and... Once I thought of this guy, I was like, yes, he would play this over the, to somebody who's just full of confidence, but at the same time, just too much. Uh, Walton Goggins. Yeah, you're going to get this one. Damn it. Um, that's really good casting. I went with Vincent Carthizer from Mad Men. He played Pete Campbell. He's just a great, cocky, asshole businessman. I, he, he would bring a... a an interesting uh, dynamic to the character, but definitely in the same vein that, that Harry Ellis played. Yeah, I like that. I do. But I mean, I don't know if he like necessarily, he's just kind of a dick. He doesn't really like kind of like own the room. Gog- the Goggins is great. He's got that same kind of way with this smile that uh, Harry Ellis does. So yeah, I, he, just, I, I he's, really like that. he thinks he's, you know, just the most charismatic person on the planet. But yeah. Or the heart, heart, that, that Hart Bachner has playing Harry Ellis. Excuse me. Right. Yes, yes, yes. All right. Uh, Deputy Police Chief Dwayne T. Robinson. Who did you have? <laughs> I went with... Uh, uh, Mark Derwin, who plays Captain Pounds in the first season of Bosch. He's great at playing like a guy in charge that shouldn't be. Mm, uh, okay. You know, even when he's like, uh, Sergeant Al Powell, they're shooting. Sergeant Al Powell's like, they're shooting at the lights. And then you hear the lights go out, and he's like, they're going after the lights. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, when I was watching the film, all I could think of was the principal from Breakfast Club, of course. Um, and I thought of like who would – Kind of has that feel to it as well. I uh, went with Ben Mendelsohn, uh, which is very much kind of in yeah, the same vein. He's kind of a go-to for us. Yeah, wow. Well, you kind of all right. Ah, uh, that's the second uh, time I've casted him. Yeah, I, I think Mark 
Ben Mendelsohn has a little bit more of a competence that comes across. Like, he's more capable. That's why he plays good villains, because you respect him and fear him in a way that you don't Mark Derwin. You, this no, character cannot be... I'll give you be, Mark Derwin. Yeah, no, yeah this character cannot be capable in any way, shape, or form. It has to be a complete moron. Well, the thing is, is it's someone that you could see being in a position of authority and believe it, but at the same time believe he's a dumbass. Yeah. Oh yeah, Mark. Yeah, Mark Durant's Ben Mendelsohn's not a dumbass. He seems capable. In Ready Player One, he was a little bit, but more so just you know overconfident. But Mm -hmm. he wasn't dumb in the way that uh, the police chief in this deputy police chief in this film is. All right, two two. Uh, Next up, Sergeant Owl Powell. I was very much stumped on this one, and um, once I thought of this actor, I was like, yeah, that's a great fit. I, Mm. I don't feel like there's a way to replace Reginald Vell Johnson. He is just made for this role, it seems like. Uh, but I ended up going with Don Cheadle. Yeah, I yeah. That, I mean, fine actor, but I don't think he's right for the character. I'm going to get this one. I went with Anthony Anderson from Blackish. Okay, yeah. yeah. I see Anthony Anderson. He, you, you think about it, he's like he comes off as comedic, but he can do the drama aspect as well. And I was trying to find mm. somebody like that, and I just. I couldn't land on somebody, and I, that's, I never even considered him. That's, that's good. I, I did think of uh, Terry Crews because <laughs> he's in Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and they reference Die Hard all the time, and like yeah. he can't have a dramatic turns here and there, but ultimately I didn't feel like he was a good fit. Yeah, but how's he going to do the Twinkie scenes? You, you're, exactly. Yeah, it's not going to yeah, work. You could, well, I'm, th- that's why I didn't pick him, and that's also why it would be difficult with Don Cheadle. Now, yeah, mm. you could rewrite that or take it out. I get I think Don Cheadle could nail the tone, but I think... I think yeah. Anthony Anderson's going to kill the comic moments, be able to play the same type of character, slip into his wheelhouse, and hit the heartfelt dramatic moments. No, too. that's a perfect choice. I love that. That's that's great. Let's do uh, Holly Gennaro. Uh, you go ahead and re- pick it up there. Who did you have? I went with uh, Karen Gillian from... Uh, she plays Nebula in the MCU. Nebula, and most recently yeah. star- starred in Jumanji. Yeah, she was in Doctor Who. She yeah, uh, she played one of the companions there. Um, ugh, I mean, she's a fine actress. Um, love that. And I, I like my choice a little better, though. I went with Rachel Brosnahan from The Marvelous Miss Maisel. Yeah, you're going to get that one. Yeah, I mean, I love Karen Gillan. You know, great, again, great actress. But I feel like... Now, the, Rachel's perfect for it. Yeah, it's great yeah. casting. She's just the uh, really good at playing a capable, smart businesswoman. Also, the, you know, a, 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 the head of a household and, and the wife of a family. And a, right, and, and she could, like, step children, in for yeah. Takagi and, like, yeah. be that kind of rock, you know. Yeah. Not that Karen Gillan couldn't, but I think Rachel Brosnahan, it's more yeah, no, it's just wheelhouse. Yeah, no, it's a little bit better. Like, yeah, a little bit better fit. Yeah. yeah you're right. All right, okay. and... Three, three. Okay, 3-3 three, three going into uh, the villain of the film, the, your MVP, Hans Gruber. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll hold the ball here and tell you my choice. And at first, oh, I had man. Gary Oldman, but I feel like I overuse him. Yeah, you, yeah, it almost so go I, with I, him or Ben Mendelsohn too, too much. No, I, Ben Mendelsohn I picked twice, and that was the okay, second time. Right, okay, Calm down right. there. Okay. Uh, I went with uh, Sterling K. Brown. He's too likable, man. I mean, Hans, I guess Hans no, Gruber is a little could, bit too. Oh, he could be bad. I, no, he he has the range to mm. play, but very capable. Oh my god, dude! He yeah, no, he's perfect. a good, he's a really good actor. Yeah, you know, but I went with someone I felt like because I thought of Jeremy Irons because he plays his brother in Die Hard with a Vengeance. You know, Simon says. Uh, so I wanted to go with someone that I felt like could be related to those actors. That is, in addition, a great villain. Jared Harris. 
Uh, most recently from Chernobyl, he played the uh, villain in the Sherlock Holmes, uh, the second film, opposite Robert Denny Jr. He plays sophisticated and, and, and a controlled madness and villainy that uh, I think the character demands uh, that, that controlled, uh, you know, a lot happening underneath uh, the waters uh, emotionally with the character and, 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 you know, just another day at the office with what he's doing. Just very capable uh, and, and cold and calculated. Yeah, I mean, cold and calculated, yes, but I don't know if I see him leading like a group of terrorists and like being like the head guy. Like he, I don't think he commands a room in the way that Sterling K. Brown would or a Alan Rickman does in with with Hans Gruber. I feel like he is, and also the well groomed part of it, Sterling K. Brown would crush. Yes, I mean, like yeah. he commands the room. He is all right. I'm going to give you that one. Okay. Yeah, all right. So four to three going into or three four, depending on how you look at it. You dick. You always say your own score first. Yeah. So okay. you know, you would say three four. I say four okay. three. All right. So John McClain, who did you have? I uh, I went with an actor that's the same age that Bruce Willis was, 33. Not necessarily an action action star, but a good actor could be made into one. Uh, had the same kind of background coming from like you know comedy, but he's done some grittier films as of late. Shia LaBeouf. Bro, no. Yeah. No. I I want to because he he's reinvented himself recently no. with his rehabilitation, and I think this is the type of film that can no. really no. change the way we look at him. You got to no. know here they say the same about Bruce Willis. You got to go with an actor who's not an action star that this film makes him one, just like it did for Bruce Willis. So I'm going with someone who's not an action star. I'm thinking outside the box here. You got to think of no. a discovery. No, no. Same age, man, and he can play gritty. He's a hell of an actor. I mean, he's a good actor, but no, 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 not for John McClane. I mean, I, I don't do not see it with Shia LaBeouf. I actually, this is the first time I've ever casted him, and um, but I had to. I feel like he's perfect, John McClane. And like, how do you replace Bruce Willis? But if anybody could, this guy could. Tom Hardy. Yeah, you're gonna win. God damn, I just I can't cast him. You can't I, pick I, Tom I, Hardy. Yeah. I had a trump card on you there, man. It's just because I've never picked him. But you, I mean, All you right. picked him a few times. But you, you win. I, I lose. Uh, Lose three five. Yes. I am a golden god. Real quick fan theory that I was uh, uh, kind of chuckled to to read. There was one dumb one out there about the Die Hard existing in the same universe as the Pixar films. It I, it's not even worth mentioning. Um, so I'm not going to touch on that one. But this is what did. But yeah, shut up. Uh, so <laughs> uh, this one though, it has a little water to it. Um, and it's more so a fan theory that maybe shows Gruber's motivations or covers a little bit of a plot hole. Uh, and it's that Hans had always planned to blow up the majority of his crew in the rooftop explosion. And you may be thinking, it's like, well, why would he do that? He, he left Joker the, move. Joker move, yes. Uh, you think about the end, and I know that the ambulance escape was kind of a late plan, but... How many, how many people are they really going to fit in, in an ambulance? Think of how many terrorists there were, how many thieves, how many people in his group. It's probably him and Theo getting away. Yeah, and you know what? He probably would have killed Theo and yep. kept it all What's for himself the, yep. and left. Because he needed someone to drive while he was in the back. Yep. Yes. So he had always, And then that way you have the terrorist bodies uh, up on the rooftop. They go through them. He would have got away without anybody thinking of the authorities being none the wiser. If it wasn't that for that pesky John McClane, of course. 
But, uh, and you think about it in Die Hard with a Vengeance, uh, Jeremy Irons does something similar in that he um, you know, kind of has that betrayal of his group that had helped him. Group Hans was going to do the same thing. He just never got a chance to uh, because of uh, you know, McLean um, kind of triggering it early. Hmm. I think that, uh, yeah, you're right. That, that holds water. Yeah, uh, so I thought it was yeah it was interesting to kind of bring a fan theory brought out something you really didn't think about, but absolutely makes a lot of sense. And we'll close out the episode talking about the legacy and impact of Die Hard, considered one of the best action movies of all time and one of the best Christmas-themed films ever made, a quintessential American action film. Well, that's kind of up for debate, it being a Christmas movie. I mean, you can look at the release date that we're publishing for this episode of the podcast. I, we absolutely recognize it as a Christmas film, but some do not. Uh, but it, it absolutely is. Well, what makes a Christmas movie, okay? Uh, it, there's two rules that, that I've established. Number one, does it have Christmas music? Yes. Number two, does it take place during Christmas? Yes. If the answer is yes to both those questions, it is a Christmas movie. Now, as you said, there has been a debate. Uh, Steve Souza, the screenwriter, said it was a Christmas movie. Bruce Willis has went on record saying it's not a Christmas movie. It's a Bruce Willis movie. He said that at his celebrity roast of himself. It was a joke saying that. Shit it. 20th Century Fox, the studio that was the distributor for the film, has thus ended the debate recently uh, when they released a special Christmas edition with a recut trailer claiming Die Hard as it is the greatest Christmas story ever told. Hmm. It, I, there's a love story in there between Holly and John. I mean, it, it's got the elements. you know, got the redemption arc of Sergeant Powell, you know, so um, it, it's not uh, your cliche Christmas film um, that you would see maybe on the Hallmark Channel, but it, yes, absolutely is a Christmas movie. Yeah. Uh, some of the all-time list, number 39 on AFI's top 100 thriller movies of all time. Uh, Hans Gruber was the 46th greatest movie villain of all time. So as we mentioned before, one of the great movie villains. Uh, 124 on IMDb's top 250 movies. Uh Entertainment Weekly ranks John McClane number 12 and Hans Gruber number 17th as the greatest hero and villains in movies of all time. Oh, and wow. Entertainment Weekly ranks Die Hard as the number one action movie of all time. Empire Magazine in 2017 ranked Die Hard number 20 on its 100 greatest movies of all time. And wow. as we just talked about, yeah, as we just talked about the uh, Christmas debate, it is also listed on some all-time great Christmas movie list by Guardian, Digital Spy, Entertainment Weekly, and The Hollywood Reporter. Empire, Forbes, and San Francisco Gate, all three rank at number one Christmas movie of all time. And in 2017, it was selected for preservation by the National Film Registry of the Library of Congress. And also, Bruce Willis, he donated uh, his uh, the uh, undershirt that he wore in the film to the Smithsonian Institute. Uh, so, I mean, there is, it definitely has its uh, place in the zeitgeist of film and in, uh, in the history of film as well. And so, in American history. Uh, definitely. Uh, and I would say, though, its biggest legacy that it had starting in 88 after it came out was the establishment of the 
action movie formula. Mm-hmm. Die Hard on a blank. Yep. And uh, movies that followed under Siege 1 and 2, Passenger 57, Air Force 1, Sudden Death, of course, Speed 1, and Speed 2, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, m- most recently, Olympus Has Fallen, which is what, Die Hard uh, at the White House. In fact, they made two of them, White House Down and Olympus Has Fallen, which has gone on to be a, what, a, a feature film trilogy at this point, starring Gerard Butler. Uh, but that is, was a successful, as you said, action formula for movies. Hollywood is a copycat league. And this was copied heavily uh, and, and still is to this day. I mean, a lone hero, every man, isolated in a setting, facing off against a colorful villain uh, with henchmen and terrorists. Yeah, but I mean, there's there's nothing like the first one, uh, that, that the original Die Hard and the fact that it's you know remembered and watched uh, during Christmas time, of course, but during other times as well yeah. uh, as as the penultimate action film. And it's no mistake that the formula is still going strong 30 years later. Yes, it has evolved and changed to fit the times and to try to reinvent itself a little bit, but it all comes back uh, to what this movie laid the groundwork for. Yeah, Lone Hero fights overcoming odds. I mean, it set the gold standard for action films. Uh, and it's the genre's biggest impact, you know, is on action and on Christmas. It's the two genres that it's had the biggest impact on. It's the most remembered for, uh, and it tops all time list in both action films and Christmas movies, uh, separately talking about its impact, 975 references, uh, one and too many to mention. I mean, we talked about its impact on other films that ripped off its concept, plot and premise, but the Simpsons, I, I love the reference it has. Homer Simpson writes a letter to the movie. I think the government has better things to do than to read my mail. Most people write letters to movie stars. The Simpson guy writes to movies. Dear Die Hard, you rock, especially when that guy was on the roof. P.S. Do you know Mad Max? <laughs> <laughs> and that was your favorite scene. So you and Homer have something in common. What are you trying to say, Warren? Yeah, it was, you named that your winner, and that was Homer's. <laughs> yeah. Um, I always love the, the reference that it had in uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, the TV show. They actually had like a Die Hard episode uh, because uh, Andy Samberg's character, uh, Jake Peralta, is obsessed with the movie and obsessed with John McClane, of course, because he's a New York City cop. Uh, so they, they lean into that heavily, but always always get a kick out of it on that show. Yeah, uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine references a lot of uh, cult classic films, though, don't they? Uh, you know, it's... No, but Die Hard Stand, I mean, it is very much uh, on a pedestal of, the, of how much it's referenced and how much one of the lead characters idolizes this film. It, trust me, it's, it's different than the other references. Yeah, it's been spoofed in Family Guy and, you know... Um, uh, yeah, so uh, definitely uh, has resonated in pop culture and continues to make its impact in, in films and television shows uh, to this day. Four sequels, Die Hard 2 in 1990, two years later, Die Hard with a Vengeance in 1995. John McTiernan returned to direct that with Samuel L. Jackson co-starring. Uh, Live Free or Die Hard 2007, this is kind of where the franchise started to dip. I think Die Hard with a Vengeance uh, was a very worthy sequel. Uh, to this film, uh, we all agree that first Die Hard's the best. But and uh, the fifth film and most recent, A Good Day to Die Hard in 2013. What the hell, man? That title is awful. Out of all those, if to cover on this podcast, it will be the one we're doing now, and hopefully Die Hard with a Vengeance one day. 
Six video games based on the film and franchise. I remember most vividly the PlayStation Trilogy game. That was great. Played the hell out of that. Game was really ahead of its time, uh, open world. I mean, you know, it's had its issues uh, and is inferior today. But back then, a uh, uh, hell of a good time playing it. Especially if you're a fan of the movies. Yeah, and there was like an arcade game that was like that kind of chunky N64 graphics. But you like went up the the you know the, the building and it was like a co-op game it was pretty fun i remember that one too and peter bradshaw of the guardian summed it up best when he said quote only the hardest of hearts could fail to enjoy the great 80s action classic with uproarious explosions deafening shootouts and smart alec taglines following the bad guys getting shot unquote that is going to do it for this episode of replay value thank you so much for listening Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast, and if you love what you hear, take the time to rate, review, and share with a friend. You can follow us on Twitter at ReplayValuePod. We are available on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every other Tuesday, and we'll see you then. Bye! This has been a Waldo Pickles production.